Hello again, my friends. Thanks for tuning in to my soon-to-be podcast. This is a beta version as I continue to figure out the format and the process, what works, etc. But my ultimate goal is to go over stories of the week that I thought were important, give myself a chance to reflect on them, and speak a little more at length about the stories, and then give you guys an idea of what's to come next week so you can prepare. So, Without further ado, let's jump right into the first story of the week, and that was the January 6th Select Committee concluded. They had their final public hearing on Monday, and it was a nice summary of what they had discussed up to this point. They used uh, a lot of video. They had a 12-minute video at one point, uh, reminded us of some of the characters that were um, brought to light the testimony that took place, mostly Republicans under oath that were um, arguing against the big lie and plenty of other nonsense that the right peddled over the last couple of years. And we saw real patriots like Fulton County election worker Lady Ruby. How could anybody forget Lady Ruby? Let's, let's take a quick look at one of her moments. There is nowhere I feel safe. Nowhere. Do you know how it feels to have the President of the United States to target you? The President of the United States is supposed to represent every American, not to target one, but he targeted me, Lady Ruby, a small business owner, a mother, a proud American citizen who stand up to help Fulton County run an election in the middle of the pandemic. And we also met young GOP staffers like Cassidy Hutchinson, who at first testified under the uh, um, um, guidance of a Trump lawyer who she was not as comfortable with what she was saying and came back to the committee and and told a different story where she remembered a lot more. And so it, it kind of gave us the impression that how many of these witnesses didn't recollect a lot of, of the stories that they were telling and uh, had a lot more to say if only they had the freedom to do so. And, and it, it painted this picture of Trump and his associates being mob-like figures who intimidated witnesses and um, put the fear of God in these people and that, that their careers were on the line if they didn't stay loyal to the president and the cause, which is scary stuff. But look, in the end, the committee was not intimidated and recommended some changes, including uh, shockingly, charges for President Trump. Um, and these are not legally binding recommendations. It's, it's equivalent to you or I writing a letter to the Department of Justice. But coming from Congress, it does carry some weight. And the fact that people testified under oath in, in front of Congress is, is uh, a pretty big deal. And so the, it was the first time in our nation's history that Congress has recommended an ex-president be charged with crimes. Now, there was some debate about this, whether or not Congress should even make these recommendations, because if the Department of Justice ultimately does charge Trump or any of his associates uh, with things related to January 6th, then will that be 
considered uh, done under pressure from Congress, you know, uh, under political pressure. And I, I just think in the end, you can't escape that. People are going to say that anyways. So I, I think it was good that Congress made these recommendations. And if the Department of Justice ends up charging Trump or his associates, then people are going to say it was done uh, under pressure from the Democrats anyways. But uh, might as well have Congress do their investigation as well and make their recommendations. And then uh, finally, the the committee released their report on Thursday, 845-page report, had a 1,000-plus interviews, emails, texts, etc. And as I mentioned earlier, you can really see the the pressure that the that Trump world was putting on these witnesses, um, talking about loyalty. I mean, it's something out of a movie. The way that these witnesses were talked to by Trump lawyers about the boss wants to make sure you're loyal and in phone calls made to these people the day before and we know you're going to do the right thing and if you say what what we we uh, hope you will you'll you'll be um, we'll work with you to get a nice job in the future I mean real real shady stuff to say the least um, <clears throat> but 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 I think a couple of nice things that came out of this one is. This showed what real bipartisanship can be, the January 6th Select Committee. We had Democrats and Republicans on there. Uh, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger were the two Republicans. And I don't care what people say, th that these people were not real Republicans. Spare me. Liz Cheney, with the famous last name, she was the number three Republican in the House before she, quote-unquote, crossed Trump after the January 6th riot insurrection she she just could not stomach what had been done and and for whatever reason she chose to be on the right side of history and just crossing trump on that issue was enough to have her tossed from the republican party and uh, lost her re-election bid in wyoming but this was real bipartisanship with democrats and republicans coming together to tackle an issue that was important to the american people and without the theatrics without the fighting and it really gave you an idea of what congress could be like if we just put the politics aside and boy was it a, a breath of fresh air I, I really really enjoyed watching these people work and there they also gave some recommendations including the but like the charges that they recommended for the doj but also there were changes legislative changes proposed that went through the changes to the electoral count act so currently the law uh st stood that if one member of the House and one senator would sign a letter objecting to a state's electors' uh, votes, then each chamber, the House and the Senate, would go debate for two hours. And if enough votes could be um, cobbled together, then those, th those electors could be tossed. And so the Electoral Count Act, it offered some reforms to this. One, instead of just one person from each chamber, now it's one-fifth or 20%. And, and that is that is just so much better than, than two people being able to sideline this whole process. And the, the, the reforms to the Electoral Count Act also clarified that the vice president's role is ministerial. He's just there to open up the ballots and read them out loud. And, and this was in the Republicans' interest to have this change 
put into law because guess who's going to be opening up the electoral college ballots in 2024 and announcing who the winner is? That's Kamala Harris. So what if she decided that, hey, I have control and I can decide to throw out some electoral college votes if I want? Well, that that would not have gone in the favor of the Republicans. So the, the, the changes to this law were in the interest of everybody. And finally, I think the whole goal of the January 6th Select Committee was to lay the case out for the American people. I heard a lot of pessimism about this committee and what's the point? Nobody cares about January 6th. I mean, it's been almost two years at this point and the committee worked on it for a year and a half. And yeah, they had some high-profile hearings and, and on prime time. But in the end, do people really care about January 6th? We, we have short memories here in America. But I think the real goal was to lay out the case for the American people and show them what happened on that day. And boy, I tell you, I learned a lot as far as the involvement of President Trump and the people around him and how deep the plot went with these false electors and the pressure on Mike Pence to... Um, reject the state's electoral college votes and when charges do come down because I think there will be charges though I'm not as confident that Trump will be charged for crimes associated with January 6th but some of the players around him people like John Eastman or this lawyer Cheesebro that we learned about these people were the architects of the alternative electors plan so these people will, will most likely be charged. And I think it'll just go down a little easier for the American people because they'll have heard the story and seen the case laid out by the January 6th Select Committee. And I think that in the end, that was the ultimate goal for them to work hand in hand with the Department of Justice so that Mary Garland doesn't just come out one day and announce charges for these people and Everybody wonder what what happened. How how can you bring these big charges and and we don't even know what you, what transpired. So, I I'm happy that the the January sixth select committee did its work and boy the Republicans really screwed up in the beginning. Kevin McCarthy offered four names I believe to be on it. Five Democrats were were put on there by Pelosi and then she gave McCarthy the opportunity to put four Demo four Republicans. And Pelosi rejected two of the names. I think it was Jim Jordan's, Jim Jordan and Jim Jim Banks. And the reason she used, if I recall, was that they were uh, part of the plot. And so it was. It wasn't. Uh, you know, they they had a self interest in in sabotaging the whole thing. And so she said, "Look, two of these guys you can't have, but the other two you can." And McCarthy said, "Screw it! I'm going to take my toys and go home." And he chose not to participate. And so Pelosi. Uh, added a couple more Dems and added the two Republicans. And I think Republicans in the end wish they had participated because they had an alternative story that they would have loved the American people to see that just didn't get the attention they thought it, it should have. And, um, you know, God, thank God it, it, it worked out that way because I, I was not thrilled to listen to their theatrics any longer. But there you go. That's story number one. Okay, story number two, Zelensky visits D.C. This was a surprise to everybody. Nobody thought that Zelensky was going to survive more than a few days at the beginning of the invasion of Ukraine. And there was this famous quote, uh, we don't even know if it's true or not, where the Americans were trying to get Zelensky out. And he said, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. And boy, 
that this guy turned into a leader and an inspiration for so many people. Um, but basically, he came here to the United States uh, for his first visit out of the country, his first trip out of the country, which is a real honor. I mean, this guy is a hero. And, and I remember dreaming of the day that this guy would get to leave Ukraine and tour the world and receive a hero's reception. And uh, he came here and he looked tired. He did not wear a suit, which was the biggest thing the Republicans criticized him for. Uh, but the timing was because of uh, funding for for Ukraine for the next fiscal year through the end of September. Congress was debating and voting on about $45 billion for Ukraine and military and humanitarian aid and et cetera for the country. And he just wanted to come here and um, make his case and let the American people know that this is not charity, this is an investment. And, and I'll say it is a hell of an investment. I mean, people are critical that we've spent about $100 billion in Ukraine, but I'd say we're getting away with, with um, a huge investment here, crippling, hobbling one of our largest adversaries for, for a long time now, Russia. I mean, Russia has lost, or to, due, due to death or injury, uh, 100,000 soldiers. That's like half of their original fighting force and thousands of armored vehicles, tanks, etc. I mean, a huge blow to their military. And they can't keep up with the Western world spending, especially with the sanctions that are on the country uh, are on their country. Uh, they have very few allies left in the world helping them. Only like Iran and China a little bit, North Korea. Uh, but we have the Western world. It's like forty trillion dollars worth of economies that are uh, funding the the Ukrainians, and um, they seem to have the edge now. So this this return on investment is is um, so worth it for us. We have no boots on the ground there. The Ukrainians are fighting on our behalf using our weapons, our intelligence, our coordination, and and they're routing the the Russians. Um, I mean, ultimately, this could lead to regime change as the the Russians have to spend more of their money on the military and instead of uh, domestic spending, and, and that could upset the, the local people. It diminishes the world's view of Russia's military and even hurts the sale of their military equipment. Remember, Russia is a purveyor of military equipment to the world. Um, as a cheaper alternative than the United States, but it, it makes our military look uh, equipment look a hell of a lot better than theirs, and, and I imagine hurts their sales. Um, it also, uh, the continued support for Ukraine dissuades China from attacking Taiwan, so the more forceful we are with our support of Ukraine, it shows China that we will not back off even when things get expensive and tough and um, and we will stay with our allies and you got to think that's got China thinking twice about taking Taiwan by force. It's also accelerating the energy transition in Europe both from uh, dependency on Russia but also to green energy and that's something that's going to help us in the long run. So it's just a no-brainer on, on so many levels to continue to support Ukraine. It's, it's even become a bipartisan issue that unites us. Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate, is fully on board with supporting Ukraine. And he's out there making the case that it, the ROI on it is, is just so good that um, the only people complaining are a minority of MAGA Republicans. And I'm, I'm talking a handful of people 
who say we should be auditing the money we're sending there and how can we send money to Ukraine when we can't even secure our southern border, which is nonsense. But, you know, whenever there's an issue, there's always going to be a small group of people who take the opposing view in order to get some attention. And, and that's what you're seeing. But even the leadership in the Republicans uh, outside of Kevin McCarthy, the, the real leadership, Mitch McConnell and, and his type, are fully in support of this so it, it's it's just a, a nice bipartisan issue for us to unite the country on and it has it has given biden a chance to be a real leader on the world stage and bringing our nato allies closer together even getting finland and sweden to join and these are not small fries i mean these countries have their own militaries and and um, they are wonderful countries to get into nato and um, especially in a time where Trump was uh, making the rest of the world question America's leadership, Biden has risen to the occasion and, and really brought the uh, Western world together to push back on this adversary. But again, it, it was really nice to see Zelensky with Biden in front of the White House and, and, and uh, Biden embracing him. I mean, it was surreal to see these two characters together and it, it just warmed everybody's hearts and then... Zelensky had a joint news conference with Biden, and, and Biden excels in those news conferences where he can take questions from the press and kind of riff. And, um, and then Zelensky spoke to a joint session of Congress, and, and I think I read there was like a record number of standing ovations by both sides. You, you don't see that. Usually you see a joint session of Congress when the president comes and he gives the State of the Union. But of course, the opposing political party doesn't stand and applaud for much unless it's it's really a uniting issue. But in this case, it was both sides standing together and clapping, except for a few clowns like Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert, who sat quietly, quiet, quietly looking at their phones. So um, just a, a great trip. And um, we're even hearing talk now of Ukraine uh, pushing very hard and trying to end this war in the spring or the summer, uh, perhaps even going for Crimea, uh, pushing Russia out of eastern Ukraine. I mean, we could really see a change here in, in the next few months. Um, you have to think Ukraine has the advantage with the, the weaponry they have. Um, the only thing Russia has going for it is is uh, its nuclear weapons, but I don't think they dare use them or even threaten to use them because that would get leave them abandoned by even their uh, remaining allies, China and such. So I, I'm, I'm really um, optimistic about the future of the conflict, whereas before I thought it would drag on for years and years and years, but things are looking pretty good, uh, fingers crossed, and, and we'll, we'll keep an eye on it. So there you go. Story number two, Zelensky comes to Washington. All right. The final story of the week was Trump's tax returns were released. Boy, th this was a long time coming. Six years of returns have been released, 2015 through 2020. And while people are still pouring over this stuff and um, it's going to take some time to to really understand everything, it, it was shocking to see that President Trump uh, claimed a loss in in most of the years and and only paid seven hundred fifty dollars in federal taxes in 2016 and 2017. He paid zero dollars in 2020, his final year in office. Uh, turns out he he didn't make that much money the last few years, um, you know. But but the real question is, what? Why did Trump pay any taxes at all? You know, most rich people, billionaires, 
just borrow money using their assets as collateral. And Trump had capital gains in two years during his presidency. And th this gives the impression either he got some sweetheart deals that were just too good to pass up while he was president or he was desperate for cash. But either scenario is is troubling. I mean, and, and this is exactly why the the president's taxes should be released and audited. And um, and 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 this is the problem it turns out something I learned about that I didn't even know existed, that the IRS has a rule that the president, the vice president's taxes must be audited every year. And this was not done while Trump was president, even though Biden has already gone through two two audits of his taxes. And, and as you go through the details of these taxes, you see things like questionable charitable, charitable distributions, loans to his children that, that could have been taxable gifts and not really loans, and examples of uh, income matching expenses to the dollar for some businesses. So, you know, him, him claiming just exorbitant expenses. And, and there's no way to check any of this stuff because there was no audit done. He, he was probably just deducting personal taxes, uh, personal expenses illegally in his taxes. But knowing and knowing that there was no mechanism to audit what he was saying. I mean, he could say anything. I gave $20 million to a charity one year. And who's going to check? Who's going to ask for any proof of that at all if they're not auditing his taxes? You know, every single American should be outraged that Trump's taxes were not released, which was tradition for many years, or audited by the IRS as per their rules. It's not a law, but it was their rules per regulation. So now Democrats are, are making the case that we should codify this requirement for president and VP's taxes to be audited every year. You know, and, and this is just what rich people get away with, that they know the IRS is, is down to their bare bones staff and are incapable of auditing these complicated and uh, tax returns that the rich file. And it shows the need for the additional money that Biden and the Democrats gave the IRS in the Inflation Reduction Act, $80 billion dollars. You know, the GOP can claim all day long that this is for 87,000 armed IRS agents to come to your door and harass you and all that. But it's it's total nonsense. If you, if you just do some simple Google searches and look into it, you'll see that the money is used to hire additional staff as the IRS anticipates a lot of people leaving over the next few years. Plus, just to bring the IRS up to more sustainable levels so they can perform a realistic amount of audits uh, as opposed to barely being able to function now. I mean, um, the money is the goal is to get them back up to levels of staffing that they had in the 1990s. And don't get it twisted. This is reduction of staff was done purposefully in order to um, cripple the IRS and save the rich from being audited. And 
sadly, when when the 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 Democrats took power in 2019 in the House, and Richard Neal, the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, reached out to the IRS to find out the status of the audits of Trump's taxes that he always cried about, he found out there was no audit taking place. And, and and then the audit started the day he reached out. I mean, and the IRS's response uh, simply was, well, we, we don't know why this didn't happen and we didn't have the resources to hire the right people. So there you go. Exactly why they need the additional money from the Inflation Reduction Act so that they do have the resources to conduct these sort of audits and and you know finally republicans were so mad uh that the taxes tax returns were released that they threatened the democrats saying this would be a new political weapon that's used in the future well you know what if if there's a Democratic candidate for president who refuses to release his or her taxes and an audit's not being done and Republicans want to spend years trying to get them and then release them, go ahead. I'm not going to complain about that. I, I'm interested in transparency, but I, I don't think that's going to be the case where a Democrat refuses to release their tax returns. And the Republicans even said that um, they they even threatened to release the tax returns of Supreme Court justices if in the future as a political weapon. Again, I'm shaking in my boots that, that you'll do that. Gosh, please don't release the tax returns of Supreme Court justices. I would hate for you to do that. Give me a break. So, well done, Democrats. Finally, getting those tax returns released that Trump so desperately wanted hidden. And now we know why. Uh, all of his shady deductions and loans to his his kids and uh, business expenses, that's all going to be dug through. And people are going to find out the truth. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if states like New York bring charges against Trump for um, lying on his taxes and, and he's held accountable, as he should. And it just justifies the need for the additional funds for the IRS that the Democrats supplied and uh, why we need to continue to staff the IRS. So there you go. Story number three. Okay. What stories to look out for next week? Well, keep an eye out for the name George Santos. George Santos is the GOP congressman elect from New York's third congressional district. This man was the subject of a big New York Times story that basically said his whole life is a lie. The jobs he's worked at, the schools he's gone to, the nonprofits he's ran, hell, even his sexuality are being questioned since he claims to be the first openly gay Republican elected to Congress. I mean, it's all seems to be a lie. This man is a pathological liar. And um, I've, I've got a great YouTube video about his his case if you, you want to check it out. But the GOP is going to have to deal with this. I mean, are they going to seat this guy on January 3rd? All signs point to yes. But the reason why I say keep an eye out for him is he claims on Twitter that he'll explain everything this week. So I, I am at the on the edge of my seat waiting for to see how he somehow clarifies and clears up this huge mess. I mean, literally everything about his life seems to be a lie. We don't even know who this guy is, whether his name even is George Santos. So very excited to see what happens with that. And uh, speaking of Congress members, the Speaker of the House vote is coming up on January 3rd. It's not next week, but Congress is out uh, until January 3rd. So 
Keep an eye out next week for stories about Kevin McCarthy still trying to shore up the votes for speakership. He's got to get up to 218. It seems like there's more than enough never Kevins, as they're called, who will not vote for him. The GOP is in complete civil war. Even the MAGA portion of the GOP is at war with Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene butting heads because Marjorie Taylor Greene is out there whipping votes for Kevin McCarthy. So she's essentially sold out in the eyes of the hardcore MAGA people. And they're letting her know that people like Nick Fuentes um, and and, and uh, Lauren Boebert and, and extreme right figures are very unhappy with Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, and, and on top of that, uh, the GOP Congress members like Kevin McCarthy and his group are mad at the GOP senators for passing the omnibus spending bill, the $1.7 trillion uh, spending bill to get our country through the end of September of next year. They, they wanted Congress to just pass a continuing resolution to fund the government for a few more months and with the existing budget, and then they get to weigh in once they're sworn in on some budget cuts and and they thought they'd be able to extract some concessions from the democrats um so they, they even put out a warning saying whatever senators voted for this omnibus bill we will not entertain your projects in the new congress uh, a threat to their own members so i'm i'm super excited to see what happens on january 3rd with the speaker of the house vote can kevin get up to 218 uh, who knows? I I seriously can't tell you right now what's going to happen. In the end, I think he wins because there's no alternative. There's no one else that could be speaker, and the Democrats aren't going to win. But just that, if you're if you're curious, what happens if they can't decide on a speaker? Nancy Pelosi will remain the speaker until they do. So I, I don't think we get go to one one extra day of Nancy Pelosi as speaker. But let's see what happens. I don't know. And then finally, it's not coming up this week, but. Carrie Lake, the failed gubernatorial candidate for the Republicans in Arizona, she lost her election lawsuit this weekend on uh, Saturday. So she claims she's going to appeal, but um, that's it. Um, it's over. She was the only fighter. Uh, her and the Secretary of State candidate, Mark Fincham, and the Attorney General candidate, they all fought with their election lawsuits, but the other two had lost, and now she's lost her election lawsuit. So that's the end of the road for the election deniers of the midterms. And um, boy, it's it's been a big relief. Uh, people like Herschel Walker and Mehmet Oz, they didn't contest the results of their elections uh, but these clowns in Arizona did, and and um, under dubious circumstances too. They, they they the onus was on Carrie Lake to prove that that somebody uh, purposefully sabotaged the election to harm her, and and they didn't even have evidence showing the election was sabotaged or that people were disenfranchised. Um, maybe a handful of people were upset that they couldn't have their vote tabulated at the polling place, and and. Um, decided to go to another polling place and then gave up. But it was really just a, literally a handful of people. So nowhere near the 17,000 plus she needed to change the election results. And almost every person, 99.99999% people had their votes counted, whether they were tabulated on site or they were put in what's called box three and then counted at the central tabulating place. So good riddance. Bye-bye, Carrie Lake. Uh, try again. I'm sure she'll fail her appeal, but you know we're going to let her 
ride it out to the end and have her day in the court. So there you go, guys. Thanks for tuning in to my second beta podcast. I had the flu all week, so I kind of phoning it in or, you know, half-ass effort here, but I still wanted to keep it up in order to uh, go through the motions and start to rev up for the new year because I will be going full-time with my content creation in the new year. And this is something that I'd like to do on a regular basis. Hopefully I can do it every week. I think it'd be a lot of fun. It'll allow me to get my Patreon going uh, in order to support my podcast and just reach a whole bunch of new people. So if you like what you heard, come hang out with us live on Twitch Monday through uh, Friday at this point at 4 p.m. Pacific for a couple of hours, or you can check out my channel on YouTube. I'm really important on YouTube uh, where I'm putting up two videos a day, highlights from the stream. It's uh, We're building a great community over there, and I would love to see you. So thanks for listening. Have a great week, guys. Bye-bye.